We're going to transition to our text. As, as you guys know, um, we opened up the book of Colossians last week, as is our habit. We go through books of the Bible here, and Rich opened up the book of Colossians. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around the chairs uh, in, fr- in front of you in that black Bible. We're going to be on page 983. And with that, um, we're going to have Max come up and read. Max, we'll be in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So please stand as Max reads God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Word of the Lord. Please pray with me one more time. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray a simple prayer that these truths of who you are and who we are in Christ will bring us comfort in our seasons of despair and will bring us rejoicing in our seasons of understanding that we are a child of the King. And one day you will sing over us that we are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And sin and death will be no more as we will be with you in heaven. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear these truths this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Colossians chapter 1. Well, this week, whether you knew it or not, you were at a, a neighborhood barbecue. Spring is here. We have beautiful weather. 70s, sun's out, and you were, you were at a barbecue this past weekend, or this past, this past week. And you found yourself in conversation with some of your neighbors, and there was a, there was a Mormon there, there was a, a Muslim there, there was a Jehovah's Witness there, and then there was an atheist there. And you found yourself talking about, dialoguing about all kinds of different topics of, of life, and then the, the topic of religion and Jesus came up. In particular, this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so, first the Muslim answer, I'm sorry, the Mormon answered for it first, and he said, well, this is who Jesus was. He was the firstborn of Elohim. He was created. Uh, Mary and, and Father God had sexual relationships in heaven, and, and Jesus was born in heaven. He was a, a God, not the God. That's Father God reserved for Elohim, but he was a God. And then he had a brother, another spiritual brother named Lucifer or Satan. 
Um, but, but please, no, no coffee for me. I'm good, thanks. You guys got that, good. <clears throat> the Muslim was next. Emphatically, wrong. Uh, Jesus was just like Abraham and Moses. He was not God at all. He was just a prophet. He was one sent by God to speak on behalf of God, but he wasn't the best prophet or the prophet. That was reserved for Muhammad. He was just a prophet. And by the way, Jesus did not die on the cross for anyone's sin. And then the Jehovah's, Jehovah Witness steps in, goes wrong and wrong. And he says, prior to coming to earth, Jesus was actually an angel. He was the archangel Michael. Uh, he, he wasn't God. He was, a pro, he was an angel. He was an archangel he was created. Here's a track from the Watchtower to explain that to you. And then you had the atheists, and he's like, you guys, you guys are all wrong, right? I mean, you guys are silly. All your speculations. History tells us that Jesus was just a man. He was just like a, a, a very good man, like a, a Gandhi or a, like a Martin Luther King Jr. He he had impact on social justice. He loved people. He loved the poor. He showed us what it looks like to serve in social justice. I mean, next you guys are going to tell me that you all believe in the Easter Bunny too, right? And then all of a sudden they all look to you and they ask you, well, who is Jesus? And now you get to step up and give an answer. What would you say? How would you answer that question? How would you describe Jesus? Well, this morning, Paul gives us the answer to that question. So when we do see ourselves in barbecues coming up down this summer, when we see ourselves spending time with, with people like this who, who aren't Christian, who believe in other things, or maybe don't believe at all, that, that this question comes up, well, who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? You will have an answer. And, and Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 23 gives us probably the best answer in all the Bible of who Jesus is. This is an incredible portion of Scripture that declares us, to us who Jesus is. He is the Christ and what He has done for us. Some believe that these, these words actually aren't original to Paul. They, they believe that Paul might have borrowed these from a, a, an early Christian hymn that was being passed around that they sung in verses 15 through 20. This is, this is something that some believe that this is what the early church sang, just like we sang songs. They sang verses 15 through 20. Uh, known as Christ's hymn. And whether or not that is true or not, whether Paul borrowed this from a hymn or whether these are, are his words, the fact is that we are on holy ground this morning. We are on the epic vistas of Christ and who he is, the doctrine of Christ, Christology. You want to know who Jesus is? This is it. And in this, Paul makes some massive truth claims about who Jesus is where we set our life. He is the foundation, and we need to build our life around and on top of Christ and these truths. And these truths will bring us and should bring us encouragement, peace, security, hope, even in difficult times such as facing a loved one's death. This is the rock in which we build our lives on who Christ is. So who is Christ? That's the question that we're going to answer this morning. What we see is that it says that 
he is in verses 15 through 20 is kind of the, the, the title. He is. Jesus is. Now, last week, Rich did a great job opening up Colossians, giving us the background of what's taking place. And let me just give you a quick reminder for some of you that might not have been here. Paul is probably in prison right now in Rome, and, and this young disciple that he uh, brought to faith in Ephesus probably about 25 or 30 years ago um, uh, planned a church in Colossae. Paul didn't go to Colossae. This guy, Epaphras, heard Paul in, in, in uh, Ephesus and then went back to his hometown, started to proclaim the gospel. A church was born, and he was leading this church. Now, Epaphras is visiting Paul in prison, and Paul's asking, like, hey, man, how's, how's it going in Colossae? What's the church like? What's going on? Give me the update. And Epaphras lets him know. He says, man, there's a lot of great stuff going on. Now, we just started with myself, and now all of a sudden we're, we're busting at the seams. People are repenting and trusting Christ. We're growing. The gospel is going forth. Um, uh, there's hope. There's, the gospel is bearing fruit. People are being transformed. It's awesome. But there's also a challenge. There's, there's some false teachers that are coming in from a variety of different groups, and they're, they're trying to um, take away from Jesus and the gospel of salvation. They're saying that's Jesus plus something else. If you were to be saved, it's Jesus plus this secret knowledge, this esoteric experience that only a few can obtain. And when you do, you get a, some special underwear or you get a nice little red hat with a tassel. Some are saying it's Jesus plus angels. Some are saying it's Jesus plus um, this legalism, this denying yourself, this asceticism. Some say it's Jesus plus human traditions. This is what we're battling, Paul. All these different philosophies, all these different heresies coming in, trying to take people away from Jesus, can you help? And so Paul writes the book of Colossians to answer some of these questions. And Paul starts out in verse 15, and he gives us a a heavy dose of what's called indicatives. Um, Indicatives, uh, statements of fact, things that are true. Imperatives are the commands. Indicatives are the things that are true. They're undeniable facts. And it gives us, again, a huge portion, a huge dose of these facts regarding Jesus, of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ as well. And the key phrase is, he is. He is. We see that four times in verses 15 through 18. We see in verse 15, he is referring to Jesus. We see in verse 17, he is. We see in verse 18, he is. We see in verse 18b, he is. These key little phrases will guide us on our journey to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to do what, we're going to follow just what Paul does. Paul just rips through these truths. I mean, he's just like bullet. He's just like, boom, boom, boom. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. And doesn't give a lot of explanation. He uses the rest of the book to do that. And so we're going to do the same as well. So let's look at the first he is. First, Jesus is truly God and truly man in verse 15. He's truly God and truly man. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We just went through the, the Gospel of John, so uh, many of you probably can answer who Jesus is. And immediately when we say he is the image of the invisible God, your mind immediately goes to John 1.1, right? In the beginning, the word Jesus was God. In John 14, it says that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you what? You have seen the Father. In, he, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact the exact imprint of his nature. So here, Paul says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Image means icon. 
think a, a, a stamp. Think exact replication, a replica. This is who Jesus is. He is God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus reveals to us who God is and what God is like. The invisible God, now visible. So you want to know what God is like? We look to Jesus. We look to his word. We look to his gospels. We spend a year and a half in looking at that. How God loves, how God serves, we see it in Jesus. So first we see that Jesus is truly God. He's very God. But not only that, he's also truly man. Truly man or very man. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that word firstborn can kind of throw people off. Um, Firstborn here doesn't mean created in time. In other words, like I have five kiddos. My firstborn, my first child that was born is Taylor. She's my oldest. She's 21. She's my firstborn child. She was my first created in time child. That's not the meaning of firstborn here. Firstborn here in Colossians, as in most of the time it's used in Scripture, refers not to to time, but a title. It It refers to position. It refers to status. So this is what he's saying here about Jesus. Jesus is the appointed heir of all things. He's superior in privilege and authority and in position. It's a title. Psalm 89, 27 says this, I will make him, referring to David, the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. Now, we know that David was not the firstborn son. He was actually the youngest of how many sons? Eight in Jesse's family. So here we see this thing. One commentator put it like this, the one to whom belongs the supreme right and dignity in relation to every other creature. That's what it means by firstborn, that Jesus is the ultimate authority and heir. He is truly God and truly man. That's what Paul is saying. So that's number one. He just, out of the gate, God, Jesus is God and man. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the creator. He is the creator in verse 16. Jesus is the agent who created all things, both in heaven and on earth. You're going to see that phrase over and over again, all things, all things. It's six times in these five verses. And it's just talking about the comprehensiveness of Jesus, of who he is and his power. So you see that phrase, all things, all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, that's not a very popular uh, thing to believe in today, is it? Uh, Today, if you believe in that Jesus created this world and all things, God created this world and all things by a spoken word, most people might think you're a little bit cuckoo or a little bit crazy, right? Um, especially if you're a student in here. If you're an elementary student, if you're in middle school, if you're in high school, and if you're in college, you'll be, bi- you'll be challenged big time if this is your belief in creation, on how this world came together. Uh, you will be maybe ridiculed. You might even be um, kicked out of class um, for being disruptive. You might be called narrow-minded. I mean, there's a bunch of things that you might be called if you believe that Jesus created this world through his words. Little kind of parentheses right here. We have a couple school teachers in this body. 
Thank God for godly, Christ-centered school teachers, right? Amen? In the, in the schools, in particular in the public schools. Because they're there on the front line. They're fighting this fight about creation. We need to be up praying for them. We need to be up holding for them. And maybe even paying them a little bit more. I'm, I'm going to give a, a shout out to that. All right? Amen, Cecily Richmond? Amen. All right. Here we go. But seriously, we need to be praying because they're on the front lines. There are people that are trying to dissuade and move your children away from the truth of God's Word. They will say something like this. There is no such thing as an all-intelligent, all-powerful God who designed and created our world. That's crazy. If you think that, you're, you're crazy. You're not a deep thinker. That's so outdated. Instead, this is what you should think about. This is how you should think about. This is how the world came in creation. We all know that there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there was something. And then something went bang. And all of a sudden, some green slime produced itself. And from that green slime, all the complexities of our world and life came into being. That's, 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 that's how it happened. That's what people are believing. At that point, when you hear that, if you're in class and you're a student, you raise your hand and you ask this question. If evolution is true, the Big Bang Theory is true, then why don't moms have more than two hands right now? Amen, moms? Amen. Now, we all know the Big Bang and evolution theory, again, is the predominantly taught regarding creation. And I want to show you quickly how the Lord in His wisdom has already answered that question. One, we see it here that uh, all things were created by Jesus, but that harkens us back to Genesis. In the fall, we're going to open up the book of Genesis, and we're going to start in verse 1 and go through the book of Genesis. But I want to touch on it real quick here and see God's wisdom. So turn your Bibles to Genesis real quick, to Genesis chapter 1. And here we're going to see how Jesus, how God created this world. He created all things. Things didn't evolve from one single organism, cell, simple cell organism to the complexity of life. He created life, whether plants or animals or fish or even human beings. And what we're going to see is we're going to see there's a phrase that appears over and over again when it comes to creation. It's this phrase right here. According to its kind, according to its kind, we see it in Genesis 1, verse 11, referring to the, the, the vegetation, the plants, the, the trees, the fruit trees. They were all created according to their kind. So apple trees produced apple trees, orange trees produced trees, rose, produced, rose bushes produced rose bushes. Oak trees produce oak trees. Then we see in 120, we see the, the fish and the octopus and the birds and the eagles and the owls and the sparrows were all created how? According to their kind. Eagles give birth to eagles. Whales give birth to whales. Then we see in Genesis 1:24, we see living beasts and creeping things were created according to their kind. So we see that Jesus is the creator of all things, and he creates all things according to their kind. Jesus creates and produces life according to their kind. This is scientifically verifiable in our world. 
And I can't wait for the study of, of, of Genesis, and we'll get more into this. And not only does it say that Jesus was the creator of our physical world, but the heavenly and spiritual world as well. Where the, whenever you see thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, it's usually speaking of angels. It's usually speaking of angels. We see this in Ephesians as well. Angels in heaven, he, he's talking about the invisible kingdom that he also created that we don't see yet, but one day we will see. So here Paul points out that Jesus is the creator of angels as well. He is not a created angel, and we'll see more to come in chapter 2 regarding this. So this is the second thing that Jesus is. He is creator. Second thing we see is that Jesus is the sustainer. Verse 17, he's the sustainer of all things. One seventeen, And he is before all things. So Jesus existed before he was born. It's always been. Never created. And in him all things hold together. Jesus holds all things together together. All things, invisible, visible. Humans, animals, the atmosphere, the ocean, all things he holds together. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is in full control of our world, of our universe, and not only here, but also in space and all the other solar systems. He upholds it. He holds it. The idea of hold is to bring together or band together. There's, there's orders. There's a cohesiveness with everything. It's not a chaotic system, but it's a ordered cosmos. It's an amazing truth when we think about it. When we stop to think as we step out and we walk out those doors and we see this world and we're like, Jesus holds all this together. All of this together. Some of the stuff we, we can take for granted and we don't even think about. We think about the earth. And how does, how does Jesus hold the earth together? We think that it's generally tilted, the earth, at 23.5 degrees. There's a reason why the earth is tilted because it, that's what gives us our seasons. It gives us our four seasons. If it's, if it's off four or five degrees, our seasons would be dramatically different, mostly unlivable. We spin about a thousand miles an hour right now. The earth is spinning about a thousand miles an hour right now. And that gives us our 24 hour day, our, our, our clock, our, our, our nighttime, and our daytime. And this cycle is hugely important for us. It is huge. The, the cycle of day and night, and the hours that it's daylight and the hours that it's nighttime, has a tremendous impact on our body, on our health, on our mentality. We are not nocturnal creatures. You know, we don't mainly are active at night. We are diurnal. That means that we are active during the day. And so in either case, if we had a longer night or a longer day, we would be in trouble. We would not operate correctly. Our biological clocks would be off. But God, in his wisdom, as he upholds things, it's spinning exactly how it should on the axis it should. And then there's gravity. When you think about gravity, there's a reason why we're not you know, getting launched off into orbit right now. Because of this thing called gravity that he holds together. And we're all about an average of 93 million miles away from the sun. If we're 10, miles, you know, 10 million miles closer, we burn up. If we're 10 mi- uh, million miles further away, we freeze to death. But God upholds us perfectly in this pattern. 93 average, on average miles away. And that's not even talking about how he controls the asteroids and the comets and the other solar systems and all the planets that are orbiting all the other things. He is holding 
all of this together right now as we speak. This is who Jesus is. And think about this, at the smallest level, the basic building blocks of matter, of physical form, of life, the atom he holds together. What would happen if we gather some atoms and then we split them? What happens is we, we create what's called the, the atom bomb. We've done that. We've taken the atom and created the atom bomb, and we hit massive explosion that devastates everything in its path. Jesus upholds the atom. All physical matter is built upon the atom. Tremendous energy, tremendous power. What would happen if Jesus just let atoms go and do their own thing and not hold them together, not sustain them? We might get a little picture, actually, in the day of the Lord. We talked about a couple weeks in Zephaniah where it says that the, the whole earth will be swept away. And Peter gives us a little thing. He says the, the heavens and the earth will melt away in the day of the Lord. Well, maybe Jesus just lets the atom go crazy and doesn't hold it together. This is who Jesus is. He is the sustainer of all things. And not only that physical, you know, universal world, but also our own lives. He holds us together. He is intimately involved with you and me. He's not, this is not deism. Deism is a thing that God created this world. He kind of wound it up and he lets it go. And whatever happens, happens. He has no involvement. No, Jesus is intimately involved with us. It says in Acts, in him, um, in him we live and move and have our being. And so whether we're on green pastures or whether we're in the valley, we know that Jesus hold, is holding all things together in our lives. When we're trying to hold all things together in our marriage, relationships, in a school, especially with finals coming up, we know that we have a very loose grip and things can get real crazy real quick because we don't have a good handle on life. But it's in that that Jesus is holding us together. He's holding our marriage together. He's holding our schooling together. He's holding our lives together. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. That should give us incredible comfort this morning. Fourth, Jesus is the leader and the Savior of the church, verses 18 through 20. He's the leader and the Savior of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, Paul loves this metaphor, the body. He uses it over and over again in Corinthians, talking about what the church is. The church is the body. We, uh, the church, the people, are all body parts of this body, and Christ is the head. He directs his church. The church is made up of many complex moving parts, body parts, you and me, hopefully operating as one. And we operate as one when we follow the head, when we obey the head, the direction, the leadership that he gives us. Now, physically, the head, our head, you know, has a brain in there, and it does a number of things to our body. But for our purposes here, we'll just say it does two things. The head helps us grow and the head helps us guide. It guides us. First, it helps us grow. We have the pituitary gland in our, in our head. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of hormones, but there's a growth hormone that helps us, helps our body grow. So the part of the function of the head, it helps, it helps the body grow. And that's the same with the church. Jesus as the head, he, he helps the church grow. Gives us his word. He gives us a community. He gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us so that we spiritually grow from babies to adults to maturity. And then it gives us guidance, the cortex. It gives us guidance. 
We, we, we think, we have thoughts, we have actions on how to live. And this is what Jesus does as the head. He guides us through life. Jesus is the head of the church. Just real quickly, there's a reason why at the crossing we don't use the title lead pastor or head pastor. Because Scripture says there's only one lead pastor, and that's Jesus. Everyone else are under shepherds associate pastors. There is one lead pastor, and his name is Jesus. He is the head of the church. And then we see that Jesus is our Savior, is our Savior. 18b, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, talking about the resurrection, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood on the cross. Now, we've spent the last number of years in the Gospel of John, the last year and a half, and we've seen the themes of resurrection, incarnation, reconciliation, peace, all coming through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's been the forefront of our study over the last several, several months. And because Jesus is our Savior, He deserves and should be preeminent in our lives, my life and your life. That that word preeminent means to hold first place, to hold first place, surpassing all others, primary in our life. Jesus should be the primary driving force in our life. But here's the thing. Before he can be primary in your life, he must be first savior of your life. Right? So let me ask you this question. Does he hold first place in your life? Does he surpass everything as the highest priority in your life? Now, we don't do this perfectly, of course. That's why we need him. That's why we need to be saved. Because we have a tendency to go off and say, I am preeminent. Aaron is preeminent. My agenda, my life, I'm going to do things my way. When you recognize that that's not a good way, as we will see, Jesus comes in and he is the head. He leads and guides. He saves us. Does he hold first place in your life? Look at your life. How, does he, how do you manage your time? How do you manage your, your talents, the gifts that God has given you? How do you manage your money? Does it go first and foremost through the grid of Jesus and holding preeminence in your life? This is what Francis Schaeffer said about Jesus' preeminence. He said this, if Christ is not Lord preeminent over all in your life, then he is not Lord at all in your life. If Christ is not Lord preeminent in all of your life, then he is not Lord at all in your life. So look at your life. And if you say, like, man, no, Jesus, I, I don't even think about Jesus. Well, the first step then for you is to believe in who Jesus is as Savior, that you know that your sin, and we're going to see this in a second, that your sin separates you from God. It separated everyone in here from God. And by His love and His grace, God the Father sent Jesus to be our Savior, to live in your place and my place, to die on the cross, to be raised again. And it's by repenting of our sins and trusting what He has done for you that you will be saved. And once you do that, genuinely, your worldview changes. The way you see life changes. You now see Jesus as preeminent, and you want to follow him and his word and the power of his spirit. So does he hold first place in your life? 
Paul just, again, just gives us these truth statements. He just fires away. This is who Jesus is. He's very God and very man. Truly God, truly man. He's creator of all. Invisible, visible. He holds all things together in heaven and on earth. He is the leader of the church. He is the savior of the world. This is who Jesus is. Secondly, he moves then in verse 21 through 23 to the Colossians and to us. He says, hey, in light of who Jesus is, I want you now to really focus and see your standing, the true statements of who you are in Christ. And I think this next paragraph, Paul is really reminding the Colossians and us on how do we keep Jesus preeminent in our lives. Here's one way in which we keep Jesus at the forefront of our minds. The answer is this, by reminding ourselves who we were apart from Christ and now who we are in Christ. This is a good exercise for us to do uh, on a consistent basis because this will help us keep Jesus preeminent in our lives. Colossians 1.21 says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind do evil deeds. Now that sentence right there probably makes us all feel a little squirmish, a little uncomfortable. Um, because this is our heritage apart from Christ everyone who's ever walked on the face of this planet. We are alienated, we are hostile, our enemies, and we do evil things. That's what Paul is saying. But notice, you were once, again, this is past tense, this is who you were apart from Christ. Your heritage, your legacy, your life, apart from the reconciling work of Jesus, was not very good. In fact, it was very, 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 very bad. Your life and my life, apart from Christ, was very bad. Paul says there's three characteristics that described our lives. Again, this is, this is B.C., this is be, uh, before Christ. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, something happened. Uh, there was a reality that was passed down. Um, in our relationship with the Lord. We became estranged, another word for alienated, estranged from, from God. We were kicked out. We were alienated from God's loving presence out of, the, out of the garden. Alienated means this. means to be shut out from one's fellowship and intimacy. Our, our path that we walked on with God, Adam and Eve, with, with fellowship and intimacy and love and nothing was, was shattered All of a sudden, obstacles were in our way called sin. Walls were built that we could not overcome. Our relationship and intimacy with the Lord was broken. Genesis 3.24 says it was broken to the point that the Lord drove out Adam and Eve and placed a cherubim angel in the garden with a flaming sword. He guarded the, the, the garden so we could not get back in. Our fellowship was broken. If we tried to get back in, we would have been destroyed. So that's alienated. Second, he says we are hostile in mind. Again, that word hostile means uh, haters or enemies of the things of God. It begins in our mind. Now, most people might say, and you might even say, it's like, man, before Christ, I wasn't an enemy of God. I wasn't hostile to God. I was more indifferent to him, right? Maybe some of you are in here is like, hey, hey, man, Jesus is good for you. That's awesome. That's cool. You know, I don't sweat it. No big deal. You love Jesus. Awesome. You know, I'm indifferent. 
But I think as we read Scripture, we see that indifference does actually equal um, being an enemy or hostile to God. Because I think as we, as, as those people and as us, as we dove into the Scriptures, we see the, the characteristics that God calls us to or commands us to, um, we would say like, whoa, I don't believe in that. And we actually will see ourselves as an enemy, in particular, number three, of doing evil deeds. I think you'd see their hostility to those in your life that say, oh, I'm indifferent to God. When, we say, when you say, well, if you're apart from God, you're an evildoer, I think they might get a little angry with you, right? Third, doing evil deeds. Now, again, this one's a tough one for us to swallow, isn't it? Maybe for me, it was real tough to swallow. Because I think many of us, again, think something like this. I wasn't an evil person apart from Christ. I mean, I was actually a generally nice person. I was a a, a good person for the most part, right? Um, I mean, I might have done a couple things wrong here and there, and you might even call it sin, but not evil. Evil is that category for, for terrorists, for pedophiles, for murderers. That's what, that's what evil is for. It's, it's for those category of people, and that was surely not me. I think that's how most people would see that. That's what evil is. I mean, there's sin, and then there's evil. And yeah, I might have sinned, done some things wrong, but I was not an evil person. I didn't do evil things. Well, a biblical definition of evil would be this. Anything done that is godless, anything that is against the will of God, in Scripture, against his character, against his commands. That's what evil is in the Bible. So yes, there's, there's different degrees of evil and, and a, a murder and a pedophile and all that stuff is, is wicked evil, but also wicked evil, as Colossian, uh, Second Chronicles says this, is being unable to the Lord. That, that is evil. Forsaking God and worshiping idols, that is evil. Turning your back on and rejecting Jesus, that is evil. In the NIV, in 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, Flee evil desires of your youth, but pursue righteousness, faith, and love. And so the flip side of, of evil would be unrighteousness, being unloving. The, and, and, and as we have that definition, you're like, oh, man, Yeah. I guess you're right, God. I I was evil. I was doing evil. So this is your life before Christ. And if you're not in Christ now, this, this is the reality of where you stand before him. And everyone in here was in this position before Christ. Now that's very bad news, but here's the good news. The good news follows in verse 22. Now Paul reminds them of their standing now of our position now, of who we are now in Christ, now that we have been reconciled to him. And he talks about this future judgment when we'll stand before Jesus, the day of the Lord. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago in Zephaniah, you're going to hear some real familiar things, some things that sound very familiar because we see this in Colossians 1.22. He has, Jesus now has what? Reconciled that path that had obstacles and walls that were impenetrable, are now cleared. That's what reconciliation means. The path has now been cleared so that we can have and be restored to right relationship with God. We have been reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order 
That phrase right now, if you've got a Bible, that phrase, in order, so that, those are what's called purpose clauses. You want to circle those, underline them, highlight them in your Bible, because the next thing that usually comes after that is an incredible truth for you and me. It's something that we need to just build our lives on. And we see here, we have been reconciled for this purpose, so that Jesus will be, we will be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before Jesus. That is gospel. That is great news. Incredible news for you and for me this morning. That is our standing now if you're in Christ. You're not seen as an alien. You're not seen as an enemy. You're not seen as one who does evil. You're now seen as holy. <coughs> I mean set apart, pure. You're seen as blameless. That's sacrificial language. When they were using that for the lambs in the Old Testament, it means you wanted to bring the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb, the pure lamb, no spot, no blemish. You're seen as above reproach, free from any kind of accusation. That is your standing. So on that day, as I said in Zephaniah a couple weeks ago, when you come before the Lord and he opens up his little file or whatever thing he has and he pulls Aaron Santini's file, and he says, Aaron Santini, this is your standing. And he doesn't say again, alienated, enemy. He says, you are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You kidding me? That is awesome. In verse 21, we were we were dead. No hope. And now because of what Christ has done, we rejoice and have all the hope in the world. This is good news. In verse 21, we see we had a vertical problem with God. We were estranged from it. In verse 22, that vertical problem was reconciled by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And our intimate fellowship has been rectified and restored. This is how we keep Jesus preeminent in our lives. We are reminded by the love, the grace, the reconciliation power found in the gospel only in Jesus. You see, when we recognize this fact that we were great sinners, we, we own that, then we will see Jesus as our great Savior. And He will take preeminence in our minds, in our thoughts, in our actions. And ultimately, in our worship. Now, that's cool. Verse 22 is, is big. You, you know, I have a buddy who's a pastor in Albuquerque, and he's like gospel nugget. So he puts GN next to all these sweet gospel nugget passages. So you want to start that great. 22 is a gospel nugget. But verse 23 is even awesomer. I'm making up words as I go along right up here right now. This is the final indicative, the final truth about who you are and who I am in Christ. This is awesome. 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and earth, of which I, Paul, had become a minister. Now, some commentators take this, this verse, 23, and they emphasize the responsibility to persevere until the end. It's called the perseverance of the saints. Great doctrine. We believe in that doctrine here. Um, once you're saved, you will persevere until the end. Uh, this great salvation is yours, they say, if you continue in the faith. 
If you, if you don't stumble, if you continue to be steadfast and you're not shifting from the hope, if you work at it, if you strive for it, you'll get it. So they, use, they, 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 they take these verbs, if you continue, and, and, and put an imperative on it, a command. But in the original language, it's not a command. It's an indicative. It's not an imperative. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact of who you are. So do we believe in perseverance? Yes. Do we believe, like in Philippians, it says, work out your salvation. Yeah, work out, not for. You're working it out. Yes. Is there a striving that we do? Yes. But that's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is a statement of fact of what is already true if you're in Christ. And what is true is this. What Paul is saying and is confident in is a true fact that if you believe in verses 21 and 22, then 23 is a given in your life. It's a given. It's already happened. It's a given. It's a fact. So what verse 23 is, is not so much about perseverance as it's so much about assurance, hope. In other words, verse 23, again, is all about assurance. You will persevere till the end because you are in Christ. That's what Paul is getting across. How does that hit you when you think about that? Doesn't that give you a a confidence? Doesn't that give you a hope? Doesn't that give you a peace that you know that if you are in Christ now... You weren't 21. That was your past, B.C. Now you're in Christ because you repent and trust in Christ what he's done for you. And now you will, you will make it to the end. And again, not because you're great or you work so hard, it's your discipline. It's because of what Christ has done for you. It's because you believed in the gospel. It's because you believed in verse 22 that Jesus has reconciled you by his death. It's because you believe in verse 20 that Jesus gives us a peace by shedding his blood on the cross. It's because of verse 13. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1 real quick. This is why. He has delivered, past tense, done, us from the domain of darkness and has transferred. He has moved us from one area to another. He's moved us from death to life. It's our standing now. He transferred us from the the kingdom of darkness now to the kingdom of light of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That is a gospel nugget, all caps right there. It's awesome. And this is why we persevere. Because genuine reconciliation in Jesus leads us to work and performance for Jesus, not the other way around. It's not our works, it's not our performance, it's not our striving, it's not our, those things that actually get us reconciliation. No, it's our, first and foremost, God reconciles us to himself by faith, and then in that he produces faith. So if you're in Christ, you will grow in your faith. You, you will grow and be stable even in those turbulent times where we, we, we get bounced around a little bit. You will be steadfast, although you will have some unsettled times in your life. And you will not shift, even though you will doubt sometimes in God. You will persevere to the end. You will grow. You will mature in all these areas because you are in Christ. 
Now that is an incredible truth. That is great news. It's a statement of fact. It's not a command. If, you de- if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation or heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. This is Paul's message to me and you. He tells us who Jesus is, and that's the rock in which we build our lives. And because of who Jesus is, we now have a new identity and outlook on who we are. And that should bring in a flood of joy, rejoicing, and worship. This is the greatest news on the planet. And Paul says, I'm a minister of this news. But guess what? So are you, and so are me, and so am I. And we have this opportunity in the coming weeks, the coming summer, when people ask us, well, who is Jesus? What separates Jesus from all the other religions and thoughts out there? Now you have Colossians 1.15, this early hymn in which we uh, believers from centuries have sung. Now you get to sing it. And you get to watch the power of Jesus work in your friends and your family's life. You get to watch them and see people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Just what happened with you, just what happened with me. This is an incredible passage. Let's take it. Let's study it. Let's meditate on it. Let it hit your head and let it hit your heart and rejoice that you are now a child of the King for what Jesus has done for you. He has reconciled you to himself and you are a child and you will make it to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, a lot of, a lot of truths a lot of deep truths, a lot of wide truths, a lot of truths that it might even be tough for us to get our minds around because they're so good, they're so weighty. But Lord, we also know that it's simple enough for a child to understand. But the truths are so deep that it confines the greatest minds because that's who you are. You are God. You are creator. You are sustainer. You are the the invisible God made visible. You are a leader and you are a savior. And it's in that we rejoice and it's in that where we find our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.